There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Welcome to Switched On Pop. I'm musicologist Nate Sloan. And I'm songwriter Charlie Harding. Okay, on this episode, we're going to do something a little unusual. We're going to talk about one of my favorite musical genres, jazz. Oh, fun. What does jazz (laughs) have to do with popular music? I hear you asking. Everything? Nothing? I don't know. Everything and nothing. I mean, jazz was the popular music. It was synonymous. It was inseparable for a long time. And that relationship has changed. But I think what's really exciting about a lot of jazz musicians right now is that they're trying to make this music relevant to society again. And one of the ways they're doing that is by tapping into the the political history of this music. Charlie, today I'm very excited because I'm talking to the pianist Vijay Iyer, who mm. has a new album of improvised music with his trio called Uneasy. tackles themes of injustice, the Flint water crisis, the murder of Eric Garner. I mean, heavy stuff, all without saying a word. Hmm. Wow, that's very powerful. It's a really striking album, and it makes me think about the perception we have of jazz and improvised music Mm -hmm. and how it doesn't really jive with what people are actually doing right now. Yeah, I'm interested to dive into this conversation because I don't really see how live improvised instrumental music can connect to larger themes like it feels like that could that could be a stretch so how does this work well first i think we got to get familiar with the kind of associations we have with the word jazz today <laughs> like i don't know about you but for me when i hear jazz something that might pop into my mind is like a car commercial that i remember seeing when i was a kid in the 90s we're in a swanky nightclub thank you what makes you happy what brings you joy there's some cool jazz playing your spirit our protagonist played by the actor jonathan what price your fancy? is wearing a suit he's standing what next to an infinity mood? car what catches your eye thinking of you infinity it's all very elegant and sophisticated and cool. Mm-hmm, and the mm-hmm. idea, I think, is that jazz will give you that same elegance and sophistication that you'll get if you buy an Infinity car. <laughs> Certainly has uh, an association with a certain elitism, I guess. A certain elitism, a certain sense of something kind of rarefied and luxury definitely 
I think this commercial, while perhaps very effective for getting you to purchase, uh, you know, luxury sedan, <laughs> is maybe misrepresenting the history of jazz. It comes out of an idea of jazz being this virtuosic, difficult music right. that was started by bebop musicians like Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie during the 1940s and 1950s. Mm-hmm. But they weren't just trying to create this cool, sophisticated music. They were trying to reclaim a musical tradition from white band leaders who had appropriated and profited off it. Break that down for me. Sure. And let's actually start with a song uh, from 1945. It's by Charlie Parker called Coco. It's at a breakneck tempo of 300 BPM plus. It's using these complex chord changes and angular melodies. If jazz was a music invented by black musicians and then appropriated by white musicians, this song is a way of saying, I bet you can't play this. I bet you can't steal this. Yeah, that is at a uh, breakneck pace. That is a really awesome track. And it's fast for a reason. It's supposed to be difficult. It's supposed to reclaim a musical tradition. Mm. And that's why jazz was cool, because it was countercultural. Fast forward to this Infinity commercial, <laughs> and it's like we've retained the cool, but not the counterculture. Yeah. So how can we put that resistance, that political consciousness back into our associations with jazz? Hmm. One way might be to listen to a famous jazz composition in a new way. So Charlie, come, if you will, with me back to 1959 and let's listen to Charles Mingus and his recording of Fables of Phobos. We start with this melody played by some low reed instruments. And then on top of that, this very staccato and kind of short melody comes in. Ooh, this is fun. We've got a conversation going on here. Do any associations come to mind? Any emotions? <laughs> any images when you listen to this first 30 seconds of this track? It has a bit of like a spy noir kind of sound to it. It definitely feels a little soundtracky because I, I feel like so many... Kind of, kind of like that same commercial you shared earlier, which took place like dark at night. This guy with a hat on kind of looked like a detective. I feel like this has been used over and over in film. The, you know, your jazz, and then you have the slow thing happening, that first melody, and then the second melody, dun 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 dun, kind of adds this intrigue, like something's happening. There's some action, some movement. So it's it's definitely bringing me into the world of cinema a bit. Okay, cool. So you're feeling like a Cold War espionage thriller. Exactly. What about a minute and 30 seconds into the recording? Tell me what you hear here. Ooh. 
the first note of it takes me back to hearing like a very early jazz ballad, but then it becomes again a conversation with multiple soloists and seems like everybody's had a few too many drinks it's very late it's a jam session people are kind of stepping on each other just a little bit out of tune but having a really good time okay i love your interpretation charlie and now i want to explode it great and let's start with the title of this track because that's our first big clue fables of phobos who was phobos any ideas Educate me. Orville Faubus was the Arkansas governor in 1957 when the first black students tried to enter Little Rock High School, and he sent the police in to stop it, resulting in the Little Rock crisis, which became a national flashpoint. Wow. Martin Luther King Jr. intervened. Dwight Eisenhower sent in the National Guard to escort these students to their first day of integrated school. He was someone who used white supremacy for political gain. And along with George Wallace and other Southern segregationists, really held this line during the 1950s. Wow. Okay. So my read is way off. Well, understandably, because... There was another version of the song that Charles Mingus wanted to record, one that had lyrics that would have let you know exactly what this song is about. Hmm. But his record label, Columbia, did not want him to record them. So instead, huh. the version we hear, the version that has been passed down to us by musical history, is the one without any lyrics. It's just instrumental. But... Once Mingus was out of his Columbia record contract, he recorded for a small label a version he called the original Faubus Fables. Recorded after the original, but it's the real original. Yes, and now we can hear the lyrics that he originally intended. Oh, Lord, don't let them shoot us. Oh, Lord, don't let them stab us. Oh, Lord. Oh Lord, don't let them shoot us. Oh Lord, don't let them stab us. Wow. That's that slinky reed melody that you heard is like a spy thriller. Mm. Hmm. And then that staccato melody that comes in. Here are the lyrics for that section. So that's Mingus in dialogue with his drummer, Danny Richmond. He says, name me someone who's ridiculous, Danny. And Danny yells back, Orville, Favus. <laughs> this racist governor. It's like, it's not pulling any punches. Yeah, it is an extremely potent song. And then there's that section that you heard as everyone kind of leaning back, you know, maybe having a sip of whiskey, smearing their notes a little bit. Let's hear what the lyrics to that section are. Ooh, 
Boo, Nazi fascist supremacist. Boo, Ku Klux Klan with your Jim Crow plan. Wow. And then the music goes nuts. And and you can hear the trombone. I love the trombone. It's like literally boo. He's like blowing raspberries. He's like, <laughs> boo, you, you jerks. It's like. I don't mean to laugh. I mean, obviously, this is an incredibly powerful moment. And yet the music plays this great character and announces what the meaning of the lyrics is, is saying. Exactly. And and once you hear this, I feel like it changes your perception of the original. Like, indulge me. Let's go back to that instrumental version of Fables of Fabus, the famous one, the iconic one, the one that's been reprinted countless times. And let's listen to it and see if we hear it differently having listened to the version with lyrics. My association to this jazz sound is so influenced via cinema. Let's call it the La La Land effect. Sure. Right. That the way this kind of music has been scored to represent a very different idea and a set of symbols has changed my association to those sounds. And that I've been completely mishearing Mingus for my entire life since I was introduced to him when I was, I don't know, like 15 or so. And why wouldn't you? The cues we get from popular culture, like La La Land is a great example, tell us to listen to jazz as this expression of elegance and coolness and suaveness, but often leaves out that highly political side of the music's history. So I agree, like that's how I want to listen to this music, even when there are no lyrics. With, a, with, a, with an ear towards that political edge. And that's how I listened to the music of the pianist Vijay Iyer, whose album Uneasy with the bassist Linda Mehano and drummer Taishan Sori confronts some of the civil rights issues of our time. So I got to speak to him about making protest music without saying a word after the break. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Vijay Iyer, welcome to Switched on Pop. Thank you. Really happy to be here. Tell me about the themes on your new album, Uneasy. <laughs> themes, um, themes on an album. That it's funny. They have a way of sort of emerging. We were in the studio in December of 2019, which was certainly like the throes of U.S. madness under a genocidal. Mm fascist regime uh and then you know the three of us as different 
artists of color and the face of that, facing that in different ways. Um, but that all, was all before the pandemic. And so then the incredible uprising that have, that kicked off last summer, you know, that massive response, not just in the U.S., but worldwide to police violence here uh, and anti-Black violence in particular. So when you see a movement like that, it's about hope, right? It's, mm -hmm. a, it's about people fighting for their futures. And so we were in this environment that felt like apocalypse. You know, that was the word that people would use, this sort of sense of right, right. an ending of worlds. Like that was kind of the, the tone of the conversation. And yet then here was this gesture of um, fighting for the world to come. So I guess mm -hmm. I found myself right in the middle of all that, you know, trying as an artist to imagine a future for this music. I want to talk about a specific song from the album, Children of Flint. It's one of the most perhaps overtly political titles in the collection, and I hear it as a reference to the Flint water crisis. Is there a parallel between the dynamic and playing in an improvisational trio and the political reference in the song title? I mean, that's a good question. And um, it sort of is maybe best left as a question. You know, in a way, that's sort of what a song title does is it poses that question for you. What might this group of sounds have to do with that reality? out in the world, you know? Hmm. And I remember actually we had done a few takes of it and it's not that easy to play actually. <laughs> so so sometimes <laughs> like when musicians get into this thing of like, oh, I'm playing something that's hard, you know, then they yeah. start playing it hard. You know, like they, you know, it sort of becomes about achievement. And um, finally we kind of arrived at this realization like, well, that's not what this is about. <laughs> you know, that's not what it's for. Hmm. Um, so, in fact, we had to kind of back off from it and make something that was gentler and, and uh, more spacious that invited a listener in to kind of be in that space with us, that space of contemplation. You know? I wanted to say subdued, but maybe that's not the right word. Maybe more like um, haunted, a sort of haunted feel. I yeah. think that's how I would put it. And then, you know, I also wanted it to be something I would feel comfortable playing for children. Like this is a song for the children of Flint. And it basically is asking people to support the children of Flint. So how am I doing that? You know, and how am I the aesthetic of the song to that or serve that serve that movement serve that community you referenced uh this this song children of flint being hard to play <laughs> and that makes me think of the the second selection on this album too which is called combat breathing mm -hmm. and which features uh 
an unusual and and I think to many difficult time signature of eleven eight. But it also grooves, as, as probably my body motions are conveying <laughs> right now. What what led you to this uh, to this time signature, or if it happened more organically, what what function do you think it serves within the track? This kind of off kilter eleven eight meter, so called odd rhythms. <laughs> I remember going to this Greek wedding in New York, like on Long Island, and. Uh, there was this moment where everyone was dancing at 11. <laughs> it was like not a big deal. <laughs> and I mean everyone, like the grandmas, the right. little kids, you know, basically everyone except me. Because I was like, how do you all do this? You know, so I think the, the thing is like people find ways. And in fact, that's where these rhythms come from. They come from ways of mm. moving. But then here's the real thing, which is that... Um, this piece was first written in uh, December of 2014 as the score to a collective action at Brooklyn Academy of Music. That particular moment, as you may recall, that was the year that Michael Brown was killed, it was the year that Tamir Rice was killed, and it was the year that Eric Garner was killed. And then I was like commissioned to play at this solo piano piece at Brooklyn Academy of Music. And in fact, what I chose to do was give all the commission money to this collective called Dancing Wild Black and to have them basically do the event. And actually what they did was a kind of die-in that basically was a way of not starting the show. So it was like a die-in that then we called it dying in and wow. standing up because that it started with a die-in and then they, as I played this piece, they stood up and faced the audience, which was a mostly white audience. So it was kind of about that. It was about that moment of confrontation. And for me, that 11 was about Eric Garner's final utterances, which were those 11 times saying, I can't breathe. And so that is the 11 that this piece is actually carrying. It's 11 measures and it's 11 beats per measure. And the the baseline is that phrase, in fact. It's sort of about um, both the tragedy of it and the defiance of that movement that was the Black Lives Matter movement as it was being born. So it was really about serving that movement. And that's basically what this piece is trying to do. As we're talking, I hear uh, these myriad musical references going into uh, the, the creation of this album. And I wanted to listen to the title track, Uneasy. 
and go to a moment uh, about four minutes in that really caught my ear. Uh, it's it's a moment when, I mean, this song, I hear it as something, it starts with this kind of subterranean bass line. That gradually seems to bubble up to the surface over the course of this nine-minute song. And there's a moment about four minutes in where your left hand on the piano is playing these, uh, I think these dyads that sound a lot to me like power chords. <laughs> they sound like something that a, like a rock guitarist like Pete Townsend in The Who would be playing. <laughs> Reading up on this record in advance of our conversation, I see a lot of publications refer to you as a jazz pianist, but I also see that you don't use that term. Maybe creative music is is a label that you use when required to. Why might one avoid the term jazz? What, what might be some of the, the limitations of that as it would apply to the sounds that you're engaged in on this recording? Well, first of all, the fact is that black musicians have resisted that word for a hundred years. So I learned that. I learned that from elders, that um, that this is not the word for us. You know, that's basically, you know, like there's a famous interview with Coltrane from 66 when he's in Japan. Japanese interviewer asked him something about, this. you know, what's your opinion on state of jazz today or something like that and he responds he says jazz is the word they use to sell our music but to me that word does not exist so all i'm saying is that i did not make this up <laughs> okay this is like this is the tradition <laughs> you know or like you know the more famously probably is duke ellington's line um well there's two kinds of music the good music and the other kind, right? There, you know, so there's all of these yeah. moments where artists have strategically resisted that word because what it does is it delimits what they seek to do, you know, and it it revokes their ability to define their work on their own terms. You know, I think many people might not think of instrumental music as a as a form of protest you know when we think of the kind of canon of protest music it tends to be lyrical it tends to be songs with messages that are often unambiguous and, and direct mm -hmm. how can instrumental music still communicate a message of protest that's a hard one and i'm not sure it does <laughs> i guess mm. <laughs> i mean in the sense like you know, if we did a, a blindfold test or something and we just played right. a piece of music without telling you the title, what's it doing? You know, I can tell you what it contains, but I can't necessarily. And, you know, it might also do something to me emotionally or just at the level of sensation or movement, you know. But uh, to connect that to something, quote unquote, political is... Um, right. You know, that's 
maybe I'm not sure it's the right question. And uh, I guess like what I often, the distinction I often try to make is not like whether or not a song is quote unquote political because like, you know, yeah, a title can announce and insist to you that that's the case. Mm. But I guess I think more about what kind of political work is being done in a certain creative circumstance, like in an artistic circumstance. I'm not going to call myself an activist. I think that would be a true exaggeration, <laughs> you know. Uh, but I will say that um, I will be honest about why I made a certain piece of music, and for, and then know that it's going to probably circulate without that information. Well, I can speak for myself that it's also an invitation to listen in a different way, maybe than than I'm used to. Yeah, and I find that very invigorating and very refreshing. Mm -hmm. And my interpretations of these songs may be based in my my own agency and my own background and what I'm hearing, mm -hmm. and indexed against your song titles and your imagery and your mm -hmm. and your and your names. Mm -hmm. But that's its own kind of act, I suppose, to be an engaged and aware listener and to listen with a little more, with your antenna up, so to speak, Yeah, is new for me and, and, and refreshing. That's great. Vijay Iyer, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Switch on Pop is produced by Nate Sloan and me, Charlie Harding. We're edited by Jolie Myers, engineered this week by Ben Montoya, social media by Abby Barr, and illustrations by Iris Gottlieb. Our executive producers are Nishat Karwa and Hannah Rosen. We're a member of the Vox Media Podcast Network and a production of Vulture. You can find more episodes anywhere you get podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcast app, our website, switchonpop.com, and you can talk to us on Twitter and Instagram at switchedonpop. We love hearing from you. And it's also, incidentally, where we get most of our best ideas for episodes. Check us out next Tuesday. We'll be back with another episode. And until then, thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card. Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.